Open your Bibles, please, to the book of James. James chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Uh, For the sake of our guests, we have been working through the book of James for a little over two months now. And every single week, we have been reminding ourselves of the foundation of James, the central point that James wants to make, that there is a a fundamental difference between faith that serves as kind of an idle intellectualism. It never leaves your brain. It never informs your speech or your actions, what you do, what you say. Uh, Deciphering between that and contrasting with a faith that is lived out on an ongoing daily basis. Uh, A faith that informs our identity and changes the way that we live our lives. And last week, we had a critical uh, message in which James highlighted for us how we ought to use our tongues. You might recall James chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, With our tongues we bless our Lord and God and Father, and with our tongues we curse those who are made in the image and likeness of God. So with our tongues comes both blessing and curses. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. And this morning, we're going to be continuing in that theme for how we ought to use our tongues, uh, engaging godly wisdom with regard to our conversations, our debates, our arguments, any kind of differences that we have. How do we communicate with godly wisdom? Because um, you might have noticed something. People tend to have pretty strong opinions. Are you aware? Perhaps you've had those moments in your life when uh, maybe you, or let's just say a friend you know, uh, was sharing a deep moral conviction, and what they were sharing was true, but maybe when they were done, they were a little bit embarrassed with how much enthusiasm they used to share what they believed. Have you been there? Or, or, or maybe they weren't embarrassed and you were thinking to yourself, maybe you should be. Maybe you shared that truth with a little too much energy. And so what we're going to be talking about this morning isn't just the subject or the, the, the topic of conversation that we're having, but how we share the communication, how we share the information that we're trying to communicate. So we're at James chapter 3 starting at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That's what we're talking about this morning. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, truth be told, sometimes we get really argumentative, we get really angry, we get really self-protective about topics that matter a whole lot to us. Sometimes we share things with a little too much energy. 
Uh, worse yet, there have been times in, in our lives where maybe we've actually been a negative witness, even though what we're trying to communicate is a gospel truth. And what James means to highlight for us this morning isn't so much the subject of what we're talking about, but how we communicate with our mouths. Is it seasoned with salt? Are we being gracious in the truth that we mean to share? Because you might recall, in our very first week together, we read from James chapter 1, verse 8, in which Scripture highlights for us that the righteousness of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No matter how argumentative or how angry you get about a particular truth, it might not have the desired effect that you intended for it to have. And so what James is highlighting for us is how does our speech inform our actions. Look again at verse 14. Here's what it says. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, we're going to get to that in just a little bit, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Truthfully, I like uh, the ESV version. It says it this way. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be false to the truth? It seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Now, notice something. James, he's not talking about the content of our conversations, as important as that is. That was last week. Now he's talking about how and why we say the words that come out of our mouth, with what motivation, what's happening in our hearts as we communicate. And so here's what I want to highlight to you as the first principle that James is highlighting for us this morning. I alluded to it five weeks ago. I said, we're going to get here eventually, but here's what I want to communicate to you as a key principle of James. If I say what's right in the wrong way, I am dead wrong. If I say what's right, if I communicate truth in the wrong way, I'm dead wrong. So let's break this down. There's there's two different phrases that James uses here, right? He he talks about bitter envy, and he talks about selfish ambition. The first one being bitter envy. You know, we tend to think of envy or jealousy in terms of there's something that I want, I just can't get it, and so I'm jealous of it. I want to get it. But, but truthfully, it's, it's much more than that. It has to do with the arguments, the debates, the conflict, the conversations that we have in our neighborhoods, in our family structures, with our spouses, with our kids, uh, in social media, in the political sphere, you name it. The types of conversations that we have where we get so heated, so angry, we can feel our blood boiling. And we spend more time arguing than actually listening. We're using more of our mouths than we are using our ears. Have you been there before? And then the second description he gives is selfish ambition. Well, what does it mean to be selfish? It's all about me. What's ambition? And I want it. So selfish ambition is, I am the center of the universe, I am the most important person here, and I want a conversation to go a particular way, and so I can get pent up and angry and argumentative, I'm not listening, I am simply communicating to you. I'm being argumentative. So putting all this together, for those of you um, who are spouses in this room, have you ever had one of those conversations uh, where you know you're talking about something and your spouse starts talking you're not listening 
You're impatiently waiting for your opportunity to give a rebuttal. Have you been there? Now you can elbow your spouse and say, he's talking about you right now, listen up. Have you been in that place where like, you just, you're not listening, you're just arguing, and you are so frustrated, you're so angry, and it's going in one ear, out the other, and you're ready to let the fire go. Well, sometimes that goes that way, not only in our marriages, but as we communicate with our friends, with our colleagues, with our neighbors, as we communicate with people we disagree with on the other side of the political aisle, you name it, and arguments ensue. The conflict based on this idea is this, you got it right, or you got it wrong, I got it right, and God has placed me here for such a time as this to let you know you're wrong and I'm right. God bless you, you're welcome. And it's so easy for us to stop listening and to just over-communicate. And now James, he tells us what's at stake when we do that. Look again at verse 15. He says this, such quote-unquote wisdom It doesn't come down from heaven, but it is, and then three descriptions, right? It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and then the third one, it's demonic. Yikes. James, he says, our speech, it's not from above, it's not from God. We might call it wisdom, but it's not. See, this is what I love about James. He's just so practical. It's like he brings out a spiritual MRI machine. He sets it up to you, and he says, now listen, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. This is going to hurt a little bit. I don't mean physically it's going to hurt. I mean, I'm going to expose things for you that you don't know about yourself, about the way that you communicate to other people, about how you think you are so wise in your own eyes, but you are using earthly, unspiritual, and ungodly methods, and you are far away from God as a result of it. And that's the issue that we have at play here. And you know, echoing what James is talking about, this has been my prayer for you this week, that as we walk through this text... And as we explore the principles for what true godly wisdom looks like, that we would have the vulnerability, that we would have the willingness to open up our hearts and to say, God, how am I doing in these areas? Am I displaying the fruit of the Spirit? Am I displaying love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Am I displaying fruit of the Spirit? So that's my hope for you. As as we walk through this passage this morning, we can set up the spiritual MRI test for you and for me, and then we can evaluate our lives over and against the principles of Scripture so that we can grow more and more in faith. So the first description that he gives us, he says that such false wisdom is earthly. It's earthly. We don't have in mind the things of heaven. We don't have in mind the things of God. What does it mean that that something is earthly? Think of it this way. You're not thinking about your eternity. You're just thinking about the here and now. I was thinking this week of a a familiar hymn that goes a little bit like this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 
This motif, this understanding that that when we are in heavenly glory and God wipes away every tear from our eyes and there's no more dying, there's no more death, there's no more decay, all is made new, that we will be able to enjoy the glory of God for all of eternity. After 20 billion years in glory, we still have more days ahead of us than we do behind us. But for some reason, we are still so fixated on the few years that we have on this earth, on the here and now. He says such, such wisdom, it's earthly. You don't have in mind the things of eternity, but you have in mind the things of here and now. And then the second one he gives is unspiritual. False wisdom is unspiritual. You see, we're being unspiritual when, when we take a stand on some moral conviction when we're having a a spiritual debate, let's just say, and you might even be exactly right on some moral issue, but you are filled with bitter envy. You are built up with with the spiritual or unspiritual and selfish ambition. James says that's unspiritual. It's not of God because the righteousness in my own eyes does not produce God's righteousness. And then we get to the third description, and let me just say, hang on to your seatbelts. He says, such wisdom is demonic. Really? Demonic? How? In what way? Well, just consider for a moment the key descriptor of Satan and his minions in Scripture. Uh, It might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but very infrequently in Scripture is Satan referred to as a liar. No, he's actually given a little more credit than that. The most used description of Satan is this, to deceive. See, he mixes truth with lies so that we get confused and we fall down the wrong path. The two greatest descriptions of Satan are to deceive and to divide, to tear us apart. And so I might be thinking that I'm standing up for something that I think is right and I'm getting heated, I'm getting pent up. And James means to say this, if you use earthly, unspiritual, and ungodly methods, you're dead wrong. And he tells us, this is the issue that we have. Here's why, verse 16, if your Bibles are open. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you will find disorder and every evil practice. But truth be told, it's not enough to say what things ought not be. It's not enough to simply say, like, here's false wisdom. Here's the counterfeit to godly wisdom. But we now need to ask ourselves, okay, what does it look like to have true godly wisdom? So he continues, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, it's first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You see, wisdom, it's not shown by my theological knowledge, by my religious IQ, or my religious superiority. Wisdom is the fruit of being connected to the vine, being connected to Jesus. It's the fruit of faith that I am rooted in Christ and that will be revealed not only in what I say, hear this, but also in how I say it 
and why I say it in the first place? That's the key question we need to ask ourselves. Why am I compelled to say this in this moment? Here's the bottom line, folks. Wise people know that it's more important to be righteous than right. It's more important to be righteous than right. Proverbs 17, verse 19 says this. Whoever loves a quarrel, know anyone like that? Don't say, whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. Hmm. So I could be absolutely right theologically, politically, socially, philosophically, fill in the blank. I could be absolutely right, but if I use earthly, unspiritual, and ungodly methods, I am dead wrong. I'm dead wrong. So what is our mission? Why ought we use this two-pound muscle in our tongue? Why, Why are we compelled to say anything at all? What's the goal in the Christian life? Well, I think one of the best places for us to go is to explore Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, in which Jesus, he has since died on the cross, he has resurrected on high, and he has spent 40 days bearing witness to himself in glory, and he is about to ascend on high, and before he goes, he gives what we refer to as the Great Commission, and he commissions the disciples, mathetes, it simply means followers of Jesus, He didn't commission just the big apostles, right? The leaders of the church. No, everyone who bore the name of Jesus, every follower of Jesus, he says, this is your mission. And you know what the interesting thing is? Jesus has just finished telling the disciples, it's actually better that I leave you. And they're like, are you kidding me? It's better that you leave us, Jesus? We've seen you preach with power and authority. We have seen your miraculous signs and wonders. How could it ever be a good thing for you to leave? And Jesus tells them this, because I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit, and you are going to be able to do the things that I've done in my name. And then he gives the Great Commission to the disciples. He gives them to you. Hear this message for every person in this room who is a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus says to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make other followers of Jesus. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he gives this promise. I will always be with you to the very end of the age. You see, the mission of a Christian is to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. That's our mission here at Gateway, helping people to love and serve Jesus, making more and better disciples. That is what we are all about here. So, this is the way that I put it in your sermon guide. I said it this way. We are called to speak the truth in love and to win people, not arguments. To win people, not arguments. We are not called to win debates. We are not going to go before uh, St. Peter at the pearly gates and he is going to review your whole life and say, you know what, Justin? You only won 10% of the debates that you got in. There's quite a few debates that you actually lost. No, the goal isn't warfare. The goal is always persuasion. The goal is to win people, not to win arguments. And see, when we have this idea that it's all about being a watchdog for Jesus, a pit bull for Jesus, we miss our calling. Because at the end of the day, the goal here for all of us as Christians is persuasion so that others might come to know 
the saving love of Jesus that we have. So from this point on, I want us to take a deeper look at the last two verses in the book of James. Again, thinking about this spiritual MRI machine, we're going to set up ourselves to it, and we are going to evaluate our own life. Only you can do this. So you kind of just get to sit and to observe and to say, am I showing this fruit in my life? Which is why, if you are following along in your sermon guide, you'll notice that all the questions are in the first person. This is just for you to evaluate your life. And the first one is this. Am I, fill in your name, am I pure in both motives and actions? Am I pure in motives and actions? If your Bibles are open, put a tab in the book of James and start turning to the left with me, about 30 pages, and you're going to get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, or Romans, you've gone a little too far. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. This is a very familiar passage. It's recited at a lot of weddings. And perhaps you've heard from other pastors or teachers or professors in the past. Uh, One of the experiments that you can do is every time you see the word love, put in your own name. And since we're kind of evaluating ourselves this morning, feel free to do that. I'll do it for myself. Justin is patient, Justin is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast, and he is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He's not self seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Justin does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. You see, he always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. And he never fails. You make that evaluation in your life and perhaps it's sobering to recognize just how far we are from God's standard. But that's the sanctifying work that Jesus is doing in our life, that our hope and our prayer is that we are growing in that path, that the Justin of five years ago versus the Justin today I would be able to say, I actually see growth in my life, that I am actually more kind, that I don't rejoice in evil, that I do rejoice in the truth, that I do persevere. I can see the growth in my life. So we can get practical and we can ask ourselves this fundamental question. Am I pure in both motives and actions? Am I doing the right things for the right reasons? You see, the love of God, it's not something where when we catch someone in sin, we're just so excited about it. We say, ha I got you. I knew you were up to something. I knew there was something going on. And finally, I got you. But it's also not the type of love where we say, you know what, I'm I'm just not going to enter into the fray in this one. I'm just going to kind of be an innocent bystander on this. 
So we have to avoid the twin pitfalls of rejoicing in wrongdoing on the one side, but passively overlooking conflict on the other side. I think one of the passages of Scripture that really gets at this is the context of the passage I just read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 18, it says this, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So here's an idea for you to think about. Think, think of it like this. Let's say that you are a right foot and this neighbor of yours who has just been caught in sin, they're the left foot. Now you have some options, don't you? You could say, you know what? I knew that person was up to no good. I knew that they were kind of getting into trouble. They were off the straight and narrow and you begin to resent them and to be bitter toward them. Or you could simply say, you know what, I'm not going to enter into the fray. Let the left foot be the left foot, and I'm just going to do my own thing. You see, if we are part of the body of Christ, if we are one body, many parts, then it makes absolutely no sense for us to have that type of perspective. Because the ailment of the left foot is the responsibility of the right foot because we are one body, many parts. We are always willing to enter into the fray but to do so with grace and with truth because we love one another as a faith family. The second question that you can ask yourself is this. Am I peace-loving? Very simple to understand. Incredibly difficult to do. So, So here's a litmus test for you. Here's a question that you can ask of yourself. Am I willing to pursue peace even and especially at great expense to myself? Am I willing to pursue peace even when it comes at great expense to myself? Consider the passages of Scripture that that get to this a little bit. I think of uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Proverbs 10, verse 12 Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or again, Proverbs 17, verse 19, whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. You see, loving your neighbor is not a spiritual option. Being a peacemaker is not a spiritual option for a Christian. It is a requirement for being a follower of Jesus. And a mark of godly wisdom is to promote peace even and especially when it comes at great expense to yourself that you will always willingly enter into the fray because you have a desperate longing to love your neighbor as you love yourself as a result of what Christ has done in your life. Number four, am I considerate? Am I considerate? Here's a gut check for you. Am I considerate or respectful of those with whom I most strongly disagree? Maybe even the people I don't like. You see, if it's all about being right, then it doesn't really matter if I leave someone in the wake of my destruction as I debate and argue with them and I tell them they're wrong and I'm right and and I can be as hot and as mad in the face as I want to be and none of that matters. 
But now picture it this way. Think again of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13. If I'm talking to a Christian and I'm the right foot and they're the left foot, then I know that it is in the best interest of the body for me to consider the needs of the left foot. I'm always willing to enter into the fray. And if I'm talking to a non-Christian, someone who is not yet a part of the body of Christ, then I know that the motif here isn't warfare, it's persuasion. And it's really hard for someone to listen to your words when they think you're out to get them. And so in either case, whether we're talking to fellow Christians or we're talking to someone who doesn't yet know the name of Jesus, godly wisdom always takes into consideration those with whom we are talking to. We want to be respectful of them. We want to be considerate toward them. Verse 17, the wisdom from above, it's first pure, then it's peaceable, then it's considerate, and then number four, it's submissive. Another way you could say that is open to reason. I put it this way in your sermon guide. Am I teachable? Am I teachable? Think, for example, of what uh, James has already said to us in chapter 1, verse 19, when he says, Know this, beloved brothers and sisters, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Or Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in correction, but only in expressing his opinion. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but I like that one. You see, one of the issues that's connected to all of the topics that we're talking about this morning is asking a fundamental question, where do I place my sense of identity? If my identity is rooted in what God says of me, that my salvation is already signed, it's already sealed, it's already delivered, God the Father, every time he looks at Justin, every time he looks at me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Not because of what I have done, but precisely because of what Jesus has done for me. I have a secure footing. I have an an identity that says I am known, I am loved, I am cherished by the Creator. But you see, if I place my identity not in God, but in the horizontal things that God has made, maybe in my my work or power or esteem or fame or, or my knowledge or my wealth or my influence, fill in the blank, if I place my identity in these things that crumble away, then the moment you receive criticism, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to be hot-tempered or it is going to crush you. But if we already have a firm footing that we know who we are in Christ, then now we have a teachable spirit. We might actually be able to receive criticism that comes from others. That's a huge one. Number five, am I merciful? Am I merciful? Now consider this. Most people are merciful to those who deserve it. But that's not the question, is it? The question is this. Are you merciful to those who don't deserve your mercy? Because after all, that's what the definition of mercy is. Recognizing that while I was yet a sinner... Christ died for me. 
that before I even gave a thought of Jesus, he died for me. He willingly came from heaven down to earth. He took upon flesh. He carried the cross to Golgotha, the land of the skull. There he was crucified, died, and buried in my place. And I didn't do anything to deserve that. In fact, I would spit in Jesus' face even after he died on the cross, and he knew that full well. And still he displayed mercy to me. You see, one of the litmus tests to whether or not we understand the costliness of the mercy of God is whether or not we are merciful to those who don't deserve our mercy here and now. And only you can answer that question. Are you merciful to the people in your life with whom they do not deserve your mercy? Because here's the thing, most of us, we are educated far beyond our own obedience. We know the stories of Scripture. We've considered passages like the parable of the wicked servant in which he owes a monumental debt to the king, to the Lord. This is, this is a, motif, a motif for God the Father. And the Lord just forgives him this monumental debt that he can never pay. And immediately he finds someone else who owes him a measly debt and he beats him to a pulp, he throws him in prison and he says, pay what you owe. This is an example of someone who still doesn't understand the mercy that he has just received from God the Father. And so the question we have to ask of ourselves is, am I merciful to those who don't deserve my mercy? Number six, Am I producing good fruit? Does my spouse think I'm loving? Do my employees think I'm full of joy and peace? Do my children call me patient and good? Do the people I work with, my coworkers, do they call me kind and gentle? Do I think I'm faithful and self-controlled? Are you seeing these fruit lived out in your life? And again, these are the fruit of faith. This isn't what saves you. This isn't the foundation of your faith. What scripture clearly indicates is if you are connected to the source of life, if you are connected to the Holy Spirit, the vine, and if he is in your life changing you from the inside out, then you will produce good fruit. And the only evaluation that you can make this morning is, is my life exemplifying the fruit of faith? Do other people notice the fruit of faith in me? Number seven, am I impartial? Am I impartial? See, James, he's returning to a theme that that he actually brought up in the later section of chapter one and again in chapter two, Uh, of a man who doesn't understand the costliness of God's mercy and it's revealed through his impartiality. So he finds a man who's highly esteemed, he's rich and he is honored and he says, why don't you take a seat of honor? And then he finds a poor man and he says, why don't you just sit over there in the corner? Why don't you just choose to not get my own way? And James asks, why why are we tempted to do this? To display impartiality toward our neighbors. And he says, here's the answer, because we do not yet understand the costliness of God's mercy for me. 
And so the litmus test for us is, are we displaying impartiality toward the way we treat our neighbors? And then eighth and finally, do I walk the talk? Do I walk the talk? Do you genuinely want to submit your life, your identity, your eternity to Jesus? See, the Christian walks in sincerity of life knowing full well the incredible cost of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, am I growing in godly wisdom? Remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is something we talked about last week. Are we seeing the sanctifying work of Jesus in our life? Are we growing in Christ-likeness? Are the fruit of faith being revealed in the way that we live our lives? Can we see this? And our prayer, our fight is this, that God would continue to do a profound work in us each and every day. Dear Christian, know this. Know this deep within your soul that you are loved, that you are forgiven on account of not what you have done, but but what Christ has already done for you. And so now our hope and our prayer is that we would follow Jesus in obedience and love each and every day. You see, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And he said, after giving thanks, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And you see, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this Holy Supper as a constant memorial and a visible proclamation of his death and his resurrection. So when when we participate in this communion supper, we bear witness that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was sent by the Father into the world, that he took upon flesh and blood, and he bore the wrath of God in my place he came to earth so that we could have heaven he suffered so that we wouldn't have to he died so that we could have life and he was once rejected by God so that we would never have to face such shame And not only that, but this holy sacrament is also a means of grace that unites each and every one of us together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So even as Christ unites us with himself, we are actually also united with one another, one body, many parts. And finally, the remembrance of our Lord's death that revives in us the hope and the anticipation that Jesus will come again soon. That he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more dying. There will be no more death. 
We will be reunited with our loved ones once lost, and all will be made new. You see, in a world that is groaning as a result of our sin nature, as a result of the brokenness of sin in this world, our collective calling and commitment as Christians is to pray this prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. But until that day comes, keep us attentive to our mission and our task and help us to hang on to the hope that one day all will be made new.